Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading from the book Moby Dick. We'll be reading chapters 10 to 16. Published in 1851, Moby Dick was based in part on author Herman Melville's own experiences on a whale ship. The novel tells the story of Ahab, the captain of a whaling vessel called the Pequod, who has a three-year mission to collect and sell the valuable oil of whales at the behest of the ship's owners. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might just sleep a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. Chapter 10 A Bosom Friend Returning to the Spooderin from the chapel, I found Quickwick there quite alone, he having left the chapel before the benediction some time. He was sitting on a bench before the fire, with his feet on the stove hearth, and in one hand was holding close up to his face that little negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, and with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up the image, and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there, and placing it on his lap began counting the pages with deliberate regularity, at every fiftieth page, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around him, and giving utterance to a long-drawn gurgling whistle of astonishment. He would then begin again at the next fifty, seeming to commence at number one each time, as though he could not count more than fifty, and it was only by such a large number of fifties being found together that his astonishment at the multitude of pages was excited. With much interest I sat watching him. Savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, his countenance yet had a something in it which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I thought I saw the traces of a simple honest heart, and in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of a spirit that would dare a thousand devils. And besides all this, there was a certain lofty bearing about the pagan, which even his uncouthness could not altogether maim. He looked like a man who had never cringed and never had had a creditor. Whether it was, too, that his head being shaved, his forehead was drawn out in freer and brighter relief and looked more expansive than it otherwise would, this I will not venture to decide, but certain it was his head was phrenologically an excellent one. It may seem ridiculous, but it reminded me of General Washington's head, as seen in the popular busts of him. It had the same long regularly graded retreating slope from above the brows, which were likewise very projecting, like two long promontories thickly wooded on top. Queequeg was George Washington cannibalistically developed. Whilst I was thus closely scanning him, half pretending meanwhile to be looking out at the storm from the casement, he never heeded my presence, never troubled himself with so much as a single glance, but appeared wholly occupied with counting the pages of the marvelous book. 
considering how sociably we had been sleeping together the night previous, and especially considering the affectionate arm I had found thrown over me upon waking in the morning, I thought this indifference of his very strange. But savages are strange beings, at times you do not know exactly how to take them. At first they are overawing, their calm self-collectedness of simplicity seems a Socratic wisdom. I had noticed also that Queequeg never consorted at all, or but very little, with the other seamen in the inn. He made no advances whatever, appeared to have no desire to enlarge the circle of his acquaintances. All this struck me as mighty singular, yet, upon second thoughts, there was something almost sublime in it. Here was a man some 20,000 miles from home, by the way of Cape Horn, that is, which was the only way he could get there, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were in the planet Jupiter, and yet he seemed entirely at his ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship, always equal to himself. Surely this was a touch of fine philosophy, though no doubt he had never heard there was such a thing as that. But, perhaps, to be true philosophers, we mortals should not be conscious of so living or so striving. So soon as I hear that such or such a man gives himself out for a philosopher, I conclude that, like the dyspeptic old woman, he must have broken his digester. As I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low, in that mild stage when, after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering round the casements and peering in upon a silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without in solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. While he was a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. And those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. I drew my bench near him and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. At first he little noticed these advances, but presently, upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Thus I soon engaged his interest, and from that we went to jabbering the best we could about the various outer sights to be seen in this famous town. Soon I proposed a social smoke, and, producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quietly offered me a puff. And then we sat exchanging puffs from that wild pipe of his, and keeping it regularly passing between us. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference towards me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant, genial smoke we had soon thought it out and left us cronies.
he seemed to take to me quite as naturally and unbiddenly as I to him, and when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me round the waist, and said that henceforth we were married, meaning, in his country's phrase, that we were bosom friends, he would gladly die for me, if need should be. In a countryman, this sudden flame of friendship would have seemed far too premature, a thing to be much distrusted, but in this simple savage those old rules would not apply. After supper, and another social chat and smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet, and groping under the tobacco, drew out some thirty dollars in silver, then spreading them on the table, and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them towards me, and said it was mine. I was going to remonstrate, but he silenced me by pouring them into my trousers' pockets. I let them stay. He then went about his evening prayers, took out his idol, and removed the paper fireboard. By certain signs and symptoms, I thought he seemed anxious for me to join him, but while knowing what was to follow, I deliberated a moment whether, in case he invited me, I would comply or otherwise. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church. How then could I unite with this wild idolater in worshipping his piece of wood? But what is worship? Thought I. Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous God of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible. But what is worship? To do the will of God, that is worship. And what is the will of God? To do to my fellow man what I would have my fellow man to do to me, that is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do to me? Why, unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him in his, ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindled the shavings, helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt biscuit with Queequeg, salami before him twice or thrice, kissed his nose, and that done, we undressed and went to bed, at peace with our own consciences and all the world. But we did not go to sleep without some little chat. How it is I know not, but there is no place like a bed for confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say, they're open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and some old couples often lie and chat over old times till nearly morning. Thus, then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair. Chapter 11 Nightgown We had lain thus in bed, chatting and napping at short intervals, and Queequeg now and then affectionately throwing his brown tattooed legs over mine and then drawing them back, so entirely sociable and free and easy were we, when, at last, by reason of our confabulations, what little nappishness remained in us altogether departed, and we felt like getting up again, though daybreak was yet some way down the future. Yes, we became very wakeful, 
so much so that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and by little and little we found ourselves sitting up, the clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together, and our two noses bending over them as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, the more so since it was so chilly outdoors, indeed out of bed clothes too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth, some small part of you must be cold, for there is no quality in this world that is not what it is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. If you flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable and have been so a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable anymore. But if, like Queequeg and me in the bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head be slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm. For this reason a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich. For the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness and the cold of the outer air. Then there you lie like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. We had been sitting in this crouching manner for some time when all at once I thought I would open my eyes, for when between sheets, whether by day or by night, and whether asleep or awake, I have a way of always keeping my eyes shut in order the more to concentrate the snugness of being in bed. Because no man can ever feel his own identity aright except his eyes be closed, as if darkness were indeed the proper element of our essences, the light be more congenial to our clay part. Upon opening my eyes then, and coming out of my own pleasant and self-created darkness into the imposed and coarse outer gloom of the unilluminated twelve o'clock at night, I experienced a disagreeable revulsion. Nor did I at all object to the hint from Queequeg that perhaps it were best to strike a light, seeing that we were so wide awake, and besides he felt a strong desire to have a few quiet puffs from his tomahawk. Be it said, that though I had felt such a strong repugnance to his smoking in the bed the night before, yet see how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. For now I like nothing better than to have Queequeg smoking by me, even in bed, because he seemed to be full of such serene household joy then. I no more felt unduly concerned for the landlord's policy of insurance. I was only alive to the condensed confidential comfortableness of sharing a pipe and a blanket with a real friend. With our shaggy jackets drawn about our shoulders, we now passed the tomahawk from one to the other, till slowly there grew over us a blue hanging tester of smoke, illuminated by the flame of the new lit lamp. Whether it was that this undulating tester rolled the savage away to far distant scenes, I know not, but he now spoke of his native island, and eager to hear his history, I begged him to go on and tell it. He gladly complied. Though at the time I but ill comprehended not a few of his words, yet subsequent disclosures, when I had become more familiar with his broken phraseology, now enabled me to present the whole story such as it may prove in the mere skeleton I give. Chapter 12 Biographical Queequeg was a native of Rokovoko, 
an island far away to the west and south. It is not down in any map, true places never are. When a new hatched savage running wild about his native woodlands in a grass cloud, followed by the nibbling goats, as if he were a green sapling, even then, in Queequeg's ambitious soul, lurked a strong desire to see something more of Christendom than a specimen whaler or two. His father was a high chief, a king, his uncle a high priest, and on the maternal side he boasted ants who were the wives of unconquerable warriors. There was excellent blood in his veins, royal stuff, though sadly vitiated, I fear, by the cannibal propensity he nourished in his untutored youth. A Sag Harbor ship visited his father's bay, and Queequeg saw a passage to Christian lands. But the ship, having her full complement of seamen, spurned his suit, and not all the king his father's influence could prevail. But Queequeg vowed a vow. Alone in his canoe, he paddled off to a distant strait, which he knew the ship must pass through when she quitted the island. On one side was a coral reef, on the other a low tongue of land covered with mangrove thickets that grew into the water. Hiding his canoe, still afloat, among these thickets, with its prow seaward, he sat down in the stern, paddle low in hand, and when the ship was gliding by, like a flash he darted out, gained her side, with one backward dash of his foot capsized and sank his canoe, climbed up the chains, and throwing himself at full length upon the deck, grappled a ring bolt there, and swore not to let it go, though hacked in pieces. In vain the captain threatened to throw him overboard, suspended a cutlass over his naked wrists. Queequeg was the son of a king, and Queequeg budged not. Struck by his desperate dauntlessness and his wild desire to visit Christendom, the captain at last relented and told him he might make himself at home. But this fine young savage, this sea prince of Wales, never saw the captain's cabin. They put him down among the sailors and made a whale man of him. But like Tsar Peter content to toil in the shipyards of foreign cities, Queequeg disdained no seeming ignominy if thereby he might happily gain the power of enlightening his untutored countrymen. For at bottom, so he told me, he was actuated by a profound desire to learn among the Christians, the arts whereby to make his people still happier than they were, and more than that, still better than they were. But, alas, the practices of whalemen soon convinced him that even Christians could be both miserable and wicked, infinitely more so than all his father's heathens. Arrived at last in Old Sag Harbor and seeing what the sailors did there and then going on to Nantucket and seeing how they spent their wages in that place also, poor Queequeg gave it up for lost. Thought he, it's a wicked world in all meridians, I'll die a pagan. And thus an old idolater at heart, he had lived among these Christians with their clothes and tried to talk their gibberish. Hence the queer ways about him, though now some time from home. By hence, I asked him whether he did not propose going back and having a coronation, since he might now consider his father dead and gone, he being very old and feeble at the last accounts. He answered no, not yet, and added that he was fearful Christianity 
or rather Christians, had unfitted him for ascending the pure and undefiled throne of three pagan kings before him. But by and by, he said, he would return as soon as he felt himself baptized again. For the nods, however, he proposed to sail about and sow his wild oats in all four oceans. They had made a harpooner of him, and that barbed iron was in lieu of a scepter now. I asked him what might be his immediate purpose, touching his future movements. He answered, to go to sea again, in his old vocation. Upon this, I told him that whaling was my own design, and informed him of my intention to sail out of Nantucket, as being the most promising port for an adventurous whaleman to embark from. He at once resolved to accompany me to that island, ship aboard the same vessel, get into the same watch, the same boat, the same mess with me, in short to share my every hap, with both my hands and his, boldly dip into the potluck of both worlds. To all this I joyously assented, for besides the affection I now felt for Queequeg, he was an experienced harpooner, and as such, could not fail to be of great usefulness to one who, like me, was wholly ignorant of the mysteries of whaling, though well acquainted with the sea, as known to merchant seamen. His story being ended with his pipe's last dying puff, Queequeg embraced me, pressed his forehead against mine, and blowing out the light, we rolled over from each other, this way and that, and very soon were sleeping. Chapter 13 Wheelbarrow Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to a barber for a block, I settled my own and comrade's bill, using, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well as the boarders, seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Queequeg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock and bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person whom I now accompanied with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag and Queequeg's canvas sack and hammock, away we went down to the moss, the little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along the people stared, not at Queequeg so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in their streets, but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not, going along wheeling the barrow by turns, and Queequeg now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied, that though what I hinted was true enough, yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because it was of assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat, and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers, who go into the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so, Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrow from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of his ship, it seems, had lent him one in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, 
though in truth he was entirely so, concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrow, Queequeg puts his chest upon it, lashes it fast, and then shoulders the barrow and marches up the wharf. Why, said I, Queequeg, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't the people laugh? Upon this, he told me another story. The people of his island of Rokovoko, it seems, at their wedding feasts expressed the fragrant water of young coconuts into a large stained calabash like a punch bowl, and this punch bowl always forms the great central ornament on the braided mat where the feast is held. Now a certain grand merchant ship once touched at Rokovoko, and its commander, from all accounts, a very stately punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, this commander was invited to the wedding feast of Queequeg's sister, a pretty young princess just turned of ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain marches in, and being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against the punch bowl, and between the high priest and his majesty the king, Queequeg's father. Grace being said, for those people have their grace as well as we, though Queequeg told me that unlike us, who at such times look downwards to our platters, they, on the contrary, copying the ducks, glance upwards to the great giver of all feasts, grace, I say, being said, the high priest opens the banquet by the immemorial ceremony of the island, that is, dipping his consecrated and consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessed beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest and noting the ceremony and thinking himself being captain of a ship as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl, taking it I suppose for a huge finger glass. Now, said Queequeg, what you think now, didn't our people laugh? At last, passage paid and luggage safe, we stood on board the schooner. Hoisting sail, it glided down the Akishnet River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terraces of streets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of casks on casks were piled upon her wharfs, and side by side the world-wandering whale ships lay silent and safely moored at last, while from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for aye. Such is the endlessness, yeah, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Gaining the more open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh, the little moss tossed the quick foam from her bows, as a young cultist snorings. How I snuffed that tartar air, how I spurned that turnpike earth, that common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hoofs, and turned me to admire the magnanimity of the sea which will permit no records. At the same foam fountain, Queequeg seemed to drink and reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart, he showed his filed and pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained, the moss did homage to the blast, 
ducked and dived her bows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire, the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes in land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene were we, as we stood by the plunging bowsprit, that for some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lubber-like assembly, who marveled that two fellow beings should be so companionable, as though a white man were anything more dignified than a whitewashed negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there, who, by their intense greenness, must have come from the heart and center of all verdure. Quickwood caught one of these young saplings mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arms and by an almost miraculous dexterity and strength sent him high up bodily into the air, then slightly tapping his stern in midsummer set, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet while Quickwick, turning his back upon him, lighted his tomahawk pipe and passed it to me for a puff. Captain, Captain, yelled the bumpkin, running towards that officer. Captain, Captain, here's the devil. Hello, you sir, cried the captain, a gaunt rib of the sea, stalking up to Quickwick. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed that chap? What him say, said Quickwick, as he mildly turned to me. He say, said I, that you came near Killy that man there, pointing to the still shivering greenhorn. Killy, cried Quickwick, twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain, ah. Him betty smally fishy, Quickwick no Killy so smally fishy, Quickwick Killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain, I'll kill you, you cannibal, if you try any more of your tricks aboard here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then, that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Quickwick had handled so roughly was swept overboard, all hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done, those on deck rushed towards the bows and stood eyeing the boom as if it were the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of this consternation, Quickwick dropped deftly to his knees and crawling under the path of the boom, whipped hold of a rope, secured one end to the bulwarks and then flinging the other like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head and at the next jerk, the spar was that way trapped and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away the stern boat, Quickwig, stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long living arc of a leap. For three minutes or more he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him, and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, 
but saw no one to be saved. The green horn had gone down, shooting himself perpendicularly from the water. Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him and seeming to see just how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more and he rose again, one arm still striking out and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked them up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump, the captain begged his pardon. From that hour I clothed to Queequeg like a barnacle, yeah, till poor Queequeg took his last long dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he had all deserved a medal from the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dry clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaning against the bulwarks and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, it's a mutual, joint stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians. Chapter 14 Nantucket Nothing more happened on the passage worthy the mentioning, so, after a fine run, we safely arrived in Nantucket. Nantucket Take out your map and look at it. See what a real corner of the world it occupies, how it stands there, away offshore, more lonely than the Eddystone Lighthouse. Look at it, a mere hillock, an elbow of sand, all beach, without a background. There is more sand there than you would use in 20 years as a substitute for blotting paper. Some gamesome whites will tell you that they have to plant weeds there, they don't grow naturally, that they import Canada thistles, that they have to send beyond seas for a spile to stop a leak in an oil cask, that pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross in Rome, that people there plant toadstools before their houses to get under the shade in summertime, that one blade of grass makes an oasis, three blades in a day's walk a prairie, that they were quicksand. Shoes, something like Laplander snowshoes, that they are so shut up, belted about, every way enclosed, surrounded, and made an utter island up by the ocean, that to their very chairs and tables small clams will sometimes be found adhering, as to the backs of sea turtles. But these extravaganzas only show that Nantucket is no Illinois. Look now at the wondrous traditional story of how this island was settled by the red men. Thus goes the legend. In olden times an eagle swooped down upon the New England coast and carried off an infant Indian in his talons. With loud lament the parents saw their child born out of sight over the white waters. They resolved to follow in the same direction. Setting out in their canoes, after a perilous passage they discovered the island and there they found an empty ivory casket, the poor little Indian skeleton. What wonder, then, that these Nantucketers, born on a beach, should take to the sea for a livelihood. They first caught crabs and quahogs in the sand, grown bolder, they waded out with nets for mackerel, more experienced, they pushed off in boats and captured cod, and at last, launching a navy of great ships on the sea, explored this watery world, put an incessant belt of circumnavigations round it, 
peeped in at Bering Straits, and in all seasons and all oceans declare everlasting war with the mightiest animated mass that has survived the flood, most monstrous and most mountainous. That Himalayan, salt sea mastodon, clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assaults. And thus have these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits, issuing from their anthill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders, parcelling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans as the three pirate powers did Poland. Let America add Mexico to Texas, and pile Cuba upon Canada, let the English overswarm all India, and hang out their blazing banner from the sun, two-thirds of this terraqueous globe are the Nantucketers. For the sea is his, he owns it, as emperors own empires, other seamen having but a right-of-way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges, armed ones but floating forts, even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen the road, did but plunder other ships, other fragments of the land like themselves, without seeking to draw their living from the bottomless deep itself. The Nantucketer, he alone resides and riots on the sea, he alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro plying it as his own special plantation. There is his home, there lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all the millions in China. He lives on the sea, as prairie cocks in the prairie, he hides among the waves, he climbs them as chamois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. With the landless gull, that at sunset folds her wings and is rocked to sleep between billows, so at nightfall, the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls his sails and lays him to his rest, while under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales. Chapter 15 Chowder It was quite late in the evening when the little moss came snugly to anchor, and Queequeg and I went ashore, so we could attend to no business that day, at least none but a supper and a bed. The landlord of the Spoodrian had recommended us to his cousin Hosea Hussey of the Tripods, whom he asserted to be the proprietor of one of the best-kept hotels in all Nantucket, and moreover he had assured us that cousin Hosea, as he called him, was famous for his chowders. In short, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than try potluck at the Tripods. But the directions he had given us about keeping a yellow warehouse on our starboard hand till we opened a white church to the larboard, and then keeping that on the larboard hand till we made a corner three points to the starboard, and that done, then asked the first man we met where the place was, these crooked directions of his very much puzzled us at first, especially as, at the outset, Queequeg insisted that the yellow warehouse, our first point of departure, must be left on the larboard hand whereas I had understood Peter Coffin to say it was on the starboard. However, by dint of beating about a little in the dark, and now and then knocking up a peaceable inhabitant to inquire the way, we at last came to something which there was no mistaking. Two enormous wooden pots painted black, 
and suspended by ass's ears, swung from the cross trees of an old top mast, planted in front of an old doorway. The horns of the cross trees were sawed off on the other side, so that this old top mast looked not a little like a gallows. Perhaps I was oversensitive to such impressions at the time, but I could not help staring at this gallows with a vague misgiving. A sort of crick was in my neck as I gazed up to the two remaining horns, yes, two of them, one for Queequeg and one for me. It's ominous, thinks I. A cough in my innkeeper upon landing in my first whaling port, tombstones staring at me in the whaleman's chapel, and here a gallows. And a pair of prodigious black pots too. Are these last throwing out oblique hints touching Tophet? I was called from these reflections by the sight of a freckled woman with yellow hair and a yellow gown, standing in the porch of the inn under a dull red lamp swinging there that looked much like an injured eye and carrying on brisk scolding with a man in a purple woolen shirt. Give along with ye, said she to the man, or I'll be combing ye. Come on, quick quick, said I, all right. There's Mrs. Hussey. And so it turned out, Mr. Hosea Hussey being from home, but leaving Mrs. Hussey entirely competent to attend to all his affairs. Upon making known her desires for a supper and a bed, Mrs. Hussey, postponing further scolding for the present, ushered us into a little room and seating us at a table spread with the relics of a recently concluded repast, turned round to us and said, Clam or cod? What's that about cods, ma'am, said I, with much politeness. Clam or cod, she repeated. A clam for supper? A cold clam, is that what you mean, Mrs. Hussey, says I. But that's a rather cold and clammy reception in the winter time, ain't it, Mrs. Hussey? But being in a great hurry to resume scolding the man in the purple shirt, who was waiting for it in the entry, and seeming to hear nothing but the word clam, Mrs. Hussey hurried towards an open door leading to the kitchen and bawling a clam for two, disappeared. Queequeg, said I, do you think that we can make out a supper for us both on one clam? However, a warm savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me. It was made of small juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded ship biscuit and salted pork cut up into little flakes, the whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and in particular, Queequeg seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition, when leaning back a moment and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's clam and cod announcement, I thought I would try a little experiment. Stepping to the kitchen door, I uttered the word cod with great emphasis, and resumed my seat. In a few moments the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and in good time a fine cod chowder was placed before us. We resumed business, and while plying our spoons in the bowl, thinks I to myself, 
I wonder now if this here has any effect on the head? What's that stultifying saying about chowder-headed people? But look, Queequeg, ain't that a live eel in your bowl? Where's your harpoon? Fishiest of all fishy places was the tripods, which well deserved its name, for the pots there were always boiling chowders. Chowder for breakfast, and chowder for dinner, and chowder for supper, till you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. The area before the house was paved with clamshells. Mrs. Hussey wore a polished necklace of codfish vertebra, and Hosea Hussey had his account books bound in superior old shark skin. There was a fishy flavor to the milk, too, which I could not at all account for, till one morning happening to take a stroll along the beach among some fishermen's boats, I saw Hosea's brindled cow feeding on fish remnants and marching along the sand with each foot and a cod's decapitated head, looking very slipshod, I assure ye. Supper concluded, we received a lamp and directions from Mrs. Hussey concerning the nearest way to bed, but as Queequeg was about to precede me up the stairs, the lady reached forth her arm and demanded his harpoon, she allowed no harpoon in her chambers. Why not, said I, every true whale man sleeps with his harpoon, but why not? Because it's dangerous, says she. Ever since young Stiggs coming from that unfortunate VYGE of his, when he was gone four years and a half, with only three barrels of oil, was found dead in my first floor back, with his harpoon in his side, ever since then I allow no boarders to take such dangerous weepons in their rooms at night. So, Mr. Queequeg, for she had learned his name, I will just take this here iron and keep it for you till morning. But the chowder, clam or cod tomorrow for breakfast, men? Both, says I, and let's have a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. Chapter 16 The Ship In bed we concocted our plans for the morrow. But to my surprise and no small concern, Queequeg now gave me to understand that he had been diligently consulting Yojo, the name of his black little god, and Yojo had told him two or three times over and strongly insisted upon it every way that instead of our going together among the whaling fleet in harbor and in concert selecting our craft, instead of this, I say, Yojo earnestly enjoined that the selection of the ship should rest wholly with me inasmuch as Yojo purposed befriending us, and, in order to do so, had already pitched upon a vessel, which, if left to myself, I, Ishmael, should infallibly light upon for all the world as though it had turned out by chance, and in that vessel I must immediately ship myself for the present irrespective of Queequeg. I have forgotten to mention that, in many things, Queequeg placed great confidence in the excellence of Yojo's judgment and surprising forecast of things, and cherished Yojo with considerable esteem as a rather good sort of god, who perhaps meant well enough upon the whole, but in all cases did not succeed in his benevolent designs. Now, this plan of Queequeg's, or rather Yojo's, touching the selection of her craft, I did not like that plan at all. 
I had not a little relied upon Queequeg's sagacity to point out the whaler best fitted to carry us and our fortunes securely. But as all my remonstrances produced no effect upon Queequeg, I was obliged to acquiesce, and accordingly prepared to set about this business with a determined rushing sort of energy and vigor that should quickly settle the trifling little affair. Next morning early, leaving Queequeg shut up with Yojo in our little bedroom, for it seemed that it was some sort of Lent or Ramadan, or day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer with Queequeg and Yojo that day, how it was I never could find out, for, though I applied myself to it several times, I never could master his liturgies and XXXIX articles, leaving Queequeg, then, fasting on his tomahawk pipe and Yojo warming himself at his sacrificial fire of shavings, I sallied out among the shipping. After much prolonged sauntering and many random inquiries, I learned that there were three ships up for three years' voyages, the Devil Dam, the Tidbit, and the Pequot. Devil Dam, I do not know the origin of, Tidbit is obvious, Pequot, you will no doubt remember, was the name of a celebrated tribe of Massachusetts Indians now extinct as the ancient meats. I peered and pried about the Devil Dam from her, hopped over to the tidbit, and finally, going on board the Pequod, looked around her for a moment and then decided that this was the very ship for us. You may have seen many a quaint craft in your day, for I know, square-toed luggers, mountainous Japanese chunks, butterbox galleots, and whatnot, but take my word for it, you never saw such a rare old craft as this same rare old Pequot. She was a ship of the old school, rather small, if anything, with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her. Long-seasoned and weather-stained in the typhoons and calms of all four oceans, her old hull's complexion was darkened like a French grenadier's who has alike fought in Egypt and Siberia. Her venerable bows looked bearded. Her masts, cut somewhere on the coast of Japan, where her original ones were lost overboard in a gale, her masts stood stiffly up like the spines of the three old kings of Cologne. Her ancient decks were worn and wrinkled, like the pilgrim worship flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett bled. But to all these her old antiquities were added new and marvelous features pertaining to the wild business that for more than half a century she had followed. Old Captain Peleg, many years her chief mate, before he commanded another vessel of his own, and now a retired seaman and one of the principal owners of the Pequod, this old Peleg, during the term of his chief mateship, had built upon her original grotesqueness and inlaid it all over with a quaintness both of material and device, unmatched by anything except it be Thorkill Hake's carved buckler or bedstead. She was apparelled like any barbaric Ethiopian emperor, his neck heavy with pendants of polished ivory. She was a thing of trophies. A cannibal of a craft, tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemies. All round, her unpaneled, open bulwarks were garnished like one continuous jaw, with the long sharp teeth of the sperm whale inserted there for pins to fasten her old hempen thews and tendons to. Those thews ran not through base blocks of land wood, but deftly traveled over sheaves of sea ivory. 
scoring a turnstile wheel at her reverend helm, she sported there a tiller, and that tiller was in one mass, curiously carved from the long narrow lower jaw of her hereditary foe. The helmsman who steered by that tiller in a tempest felt like the tartar when he holds back his fiery steed by clutching its jaw. A noble craft, but somehow most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. Now when I looked about the quarterdeck for someone having authority in order to propose myself as a candidate for the voyage, at first I saw nobody, but I could not well overlook a strange sort of tent or rather wigwam pitched a little behind the mainmast. It seemed only a temporary erection used in port. It was of a conical shape, some ten feet high, consisting of the long, huge slabs of limber black bone taken from the middle and highest part of the jaws of the right whale. Planted with their broad ends on the deck, a circle of these slabs laced together, mutually sloped towards each other, and at the apex united in a tufted point where the loose hairy fibers waved to and fro like the top knot on some old Potawatomi sachem's head. A triangular opening faced towards the bows of the ship so that the insider commanded a complete view forward. And half concealed in this queer tenement, I at length found one who by his aspect seemed to have authority and who, it being noon and the ship's work suspended, was now enjoying respite from the burden of command. He was seated on an old-fashioned oaken chair, wriggling all over with curious carving, and the bottom of which was formed of a stout interlacing of the same elastic stuff of which the wigwam was constructed. There was nothing so very particular, perhaps, about the appearance of the elderly man I saw. He was brown and brawny, like most old seamen, and heavily rolled up in blue pilot cloth, cut in the Quaker style. Only there was a fine, almost microscopic network of the minutest wrinkles interlacing round his eyes, which must have arisen from his continual sailings in many hard gales, and always looking to windward, for this causes the muscles about the eyes to become pursed together. Such eye wrinkles are very effectual in a scowl. Is this the captain of the Pequod? said I, advancing to the door of the tent. Supposing it be the captain of the Pequod, what dost thou want of him? He demanded. I was thinking of shipping. Thou wast, wast thou? I see thou art no Nantucketer, ever been in a stove boat? No, sir, I never have. Dost know nothing at all about whaling, I dare say, eh? Nothing, sir, but I have no doubt I shall soon learn. I've been several voyages in the merchant service, and I think that. Merchant service be damned. Talk not that lingo to me. Dost see that leg? I'll take that leg away from thy stern, if ever thou talkest of the merchant service to me again. Merchant service indeed. I suppose now ye feel considerable proud of having served in those merchant ships. But flukes. Man, what makes thee want to go a-whaling, eh? It looks a little suspicious, don't it, eh? Hast not been a pirate, hast thou? Didst not rob thy last captain, didst thou? Dost not think of murdering the officers when thou gettest to sea? I protest in my innocence of these things. 
I saw that under the mask of these half-humorous innuendos, this old seaman, as an insulated Quakerish Nantucketer, was full of his insular prejudices and rather distrustful of all aliens unless they hail from Cape Cod or the Vineyard. But what takes thee a-wailing? I want to know that before I think of shipping ye. Well, sir, I want to see what whaling is. I want to see the world. Want to see what whaling is, eh? Have ye clapped eye on Captain Ahab? Who is Captain Ahab, sir? I, I, I thought so. Captain Ahab is the captain of this ship. I am mistaken then. I thought I was speaking to the captain himself. Thou art speaking to Captain Pellick, that's who you're speaking to, young man. It belongs to me and Captain Bildad to see the Pequot fitted out for the voyage and supplied with all her needs, including crew. We are part owners and agents. But as I was going to say, if thou wantest to know what whaling is, as thou tellest ye do, I can put ye in a way of finding it out before ye bind yourself to it, past backing out. Clap eye on Captain Ahab, young man, and thou wilt find that he has only one leg. What do you mean, sir? Was the other one lost by a whale? Lost by a whale? Young man, come nearer to me, it was devoured, chewed up, crunched by the monstrous parmacetti that ever chipped a boat. Ah, ah. I was a little alarmed by his energy, perhaps also a little touched at the hearty grief in his concluding exclamation, but said as calmly as I could, what you say is no doubt true enough, sir, but how could I know there was any peculiar ferocity in that particular whale, though indeed I might have inferred as much from the simple fact of the accident. Look ye now, young man, thy lungs are a sort of soft, do you see? Thou dost not talk shark a bit. Sure, ye've ye been to sea before now, sure of that? Sir, said I, I thought I told you that I had been four voyages in the merchant. Hard down out of that. Mind what I said about the merchant service, don't aggravate me, I won't have it. But let us understand each other. I have given thee a hint about what whaling is. Do ye feel inclined for it? I do, sir. Very good. Now, art thou the man to pitch a harpoon down a live whale's throat and then jump after it? Answer, quick. I am, sir, if it should be positively indispensable to do so, not to be got rid of, that is, which I don't take to be the fact. Good again. Now then, Thou not only wantest to go a-whaling, to find out by experience what whaling is, but ye also want to go in order to see the world? Was not that what ye said? I thought so. Well then, just step forward there, and take a peep over the weather bow, and then back to me and tell me what ye see there. For a moment I stood a little puzzled by this curious request, not knowing exactly how to take it, whether humorously or in earnest. But concentrating all his crow's feet into one scowl, Captain Pellick started me on the errand. Going forward and glancing over the weather bow, 
I perceived that the ship swinging to her anchor with the flood tide was now obliquely pointing towards the open ocean. The prospect was unlimited, but exceedingly monotonous and forbidding, not the slightest variety that I could see. Well, what's the report? said Peleg when I came back. What did you see? Not much, I replied, nothing but water, considerable horizon though, and there's a squall coming up, I think. Well, what dost thou think then of seeing the world? Do you wish to go round Cape Horn to see any more of it, eh? Can ye see the world where you stand? I was a little staggered, but going whaling I must, and I would, and the Pequod was as good a ship as any, I thought the best, and all this I now repeated to Pellick. Seeing me so determined, he expressed his willingness to ship me. And thou mayest as well sign the papers right off, he added, come along with ye. And so saying, he led the way below deck into the cabin. Seated on the transom was what seemed to me a most uncommon and surprising figure. It turned out to be Captain Bildad, who along with Captain Pellet was one of the largest owners of the vessel, the other shares, as is sometimes the case in these ports, being held by a crowd of old annuitants, widows, fatherless children, and chancery wards, each owning about the value of a timber head, or a foot of plank, or a nail or two in the ship. People in Nantucket invest their money in whaling vessels, the same way that you do yours in approved state stocks, bringing in good interest. Now, Bildad, like Pellick, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain in an uncommon measure the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers, they are Quakers with a vengeance. So that there are instances among them of men who, named with scripture names, a singularly common fashion on the island, and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still, from the audacious, daring, and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these unoutgrown peculiarities, a thousand bold dashes of character, not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king, or a poetical pagan Roman. And when these things unite in a man of gravely superior natural force, with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who is also by the stillness and seclusion of many long night watches in the remotest waters and beneath constellations never seen here at the north, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions fresh from her own virgin voluntary and confiding breast, and thereby chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantages. To learn a bold and nervous lofty language that man makes one in a whole nation census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. Nor will it all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances, he have what seems a half willful overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men tragically great are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O oh, young ambition, 
all moral greatness is but disease. But as yet we have not to do with such an one, but with quite another, and still a man, who, if indeed peculiar, it only results again from another phase of the Quaker, modified by individual circumstances. Like Captain Pellick, Captain Bildad was a well-to-do, retired whaleman. But unlike Captain Pellick, who cared not a rush for what are called serious things, and indeed deemed those self-same serious things the veriest of all trifles, Captain Bildad had not only been originally educated according to the strictest sect of Nantucket Quakerism, but all his subsequent ocean life, and the sight of many unclad, lovely island creatures round the horn, all that had not moved this native-born Quaker one single jot, and not so much as altered one angle of his vest. Still, for all this immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildad. Though refusing, from conscientious scruples, to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of leviathan gore. How now in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence, I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. This world pays dividends. Rising from a little cabin boy in short clothes of the drabbest drab, to a harpooner in a broad shad-bellied waistcoat, from that becoming boatheader, chief mate, and captain, and finally a ship owner, Bildad, as I hinted before, had concluded his adventurous career by wholly retiring from active life at the goodly age of sixty and dedicating his remaining days to the quiet receiving of his well-earned income. Now, Bildad, I am sorry to say, had the reputation of being an incorrigible old hunks and in his seagoing days, a bitter, hard taskmaster. They told me in Nantucket, though it certainly seems a curious story, that when he sailed the old cake of Whaleman, his crew, upon arriving home, were mostly all carried ashore to the hospital, sore exhausted and worn out. For a pious man, especially for a Quaker, he was certainly rather hard-hearted, to say the least. He never used to swear, though, at his men, they said, but somehow he got an inordinate quantity of cruel, unmitigated hard work out of them. When Bildad was a chief mate, to have his drab colorda intently looking at you made you feel completely nervous till you could clutch something, a hammer or a marling spike, and go to work like mad at something or other, never mind what. Indolence and idleness perished before him. His own person was the exact embodiment of his utilitarian character. On his long, gaunt body, he carried no spare flesh, no superfluous beard, his chin having a soft, economical nap to it, like the worn nap of his broad-brimmed hat. Such, then, was the person that I saw seated on the transom when I followed Captain Pellick down into the cabin. The space between the decks was small, and there, bolt upright, sat old Bildad, who always sat so, and never leaned, and this to save his coat tails. 
His broad brim was placed beside him, his legs were stiffly crossed, his drab vesture was buttoned up to his chin, and spectacles on nose, he seemed absorbed in reading from a ponderous volume. Bildad, cried Captain Peleg, and it again, Bildad, eh? Ye have been studying those scriptures, now, for the last thirty years, to my certain knowledge. How far ye got, Bildad? As if long habituated to such profane talk from his old shipmate, Bildad, without noticing his present irreverence, quietly looked up, and seeing me, glanced again inquiringly towards Pelek. He says he's our man, Bildad, said Pelek, he wants to ship. Dosti, said Bildad, in a hollow tone, and turning round to me. I dost, said I unconsciously, he was so intense a Quaker. What do you think of him, Bildad, said Pelek. He'll do, said Bildad, eyeing me, and then went on spelling away at his book in a mumbling tone quite audible. I thought him the queerest old Quaker I ever saw, especially as Pelek, his friend and old shipmate, seemed such a blusterer. But I said nothing, only looking round me sharply. Pelleg now threw open a chest, and drawing forth the ship's articles, placed pen and ink before him, and seated himself at a little table. I began to think it was high time to settle with myself at what terms I would be willing to engage for the voyage. I was already aware that in the whaling business they paid no wages, but all hands, including the captain, received certain shares of the profits called lays, and that these lays were proportioned to the degree of importance pertaining to the respected duties of the ship's company. I was also aware that being a green hand at whaling, my own lay would not be very large, but considering that I was used to the sea, could steer a ship, splice a rope, and all that, I made no doubt that from all I had heard I should be offered at least the 275th lay, that is, the 275th part of the clear net proceeds of the voyage, whatever that might eventually amount to. And though the 275th lay was what they call a rather long lay, yet it was better than nothing, and if we had a lucky voyage, might pretty nearly pay for the clothing I would wear out on it, not to speak of my three years beef and board, for which I would not have to pay one stiver. It might be thought that this was a poor way to accumulate a princely fortune, and so it was, a very poor way indeed. But I am one of those that never take on about princely fortunes, and am quite content if the world is ready to board and lodge me, while I am putting up at this grim sign of the thunder cloud. Upon the whole, I thought that the 275th lay would be about the fair thing, but would not have been surprised had I been offered the 200th, considering I was of a broad-shouldered make. But one thing, nevertheless, that made me a little distrustful about receiving a generous share of the profits was this, ashore, I had heard something of both Captain Pelleg and his unaccountable old crony Bildad, how that they being the principal proprietors of the Pequod, therefore the other and more inconsiderable and scattered owners, left nearly the whole management of the ship's affairs to these two. And I did not know but what the stingy old Bildad might have a mighty deal to say about shipping hands, especially as I now found him on board the Pequod, 
quite at home there in the cabin and reading his Bible as if at his own fireside. Now while Pellet was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, old Bildad, to my no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party in these proceedings, Bildad never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, or moth. Well, Captain Bildad, interrupted Pellick, what do ye say, what lay shall we give this young man? Thou knowest best, was the sepulchral reply, the 777th wouldn't be too much, would it? Were moth and rust too corrupt, but lay. Lay, indeed, thought I, and such a lay. The 777th. Well, old Bildad, you are determined that I, for one, shall not lay up many lays here below, where moth and rust do corrupt. It was an exceedingly long lay that, indeed, and though from the magnitude of the figure it might at first deceive a landsman, yet the slightest consideration will show that those 777 is a pretty large number, yet, when you come to make a teenth of it, you will then see, I say, that the 777th part of a farthing is a good deal less than 777 gold doubloons, and so I thought at the time. Why, blast your eyes, Bildad, cried Pellick, thou dost not want to swindle this young man. He must have more than that. 777th, again said Bildad, without lifting his eyes, and then went on mumbling, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I am going to put him down for the 300th, said Pellick. Do you hear that, Bildad? The 300th lay, I say. Bildad laid down his book and turning solemnly towards him said, Captain Pellick, thou hast a generous heart, but thou must consider the duty thou owest to the other owners of this ship, widows and orphans, many of them, and that if we too abundantly reward the labors of this young man, we may be taking the bread from those widows and those orphans. The 777th lay, Captain Pellick. Thou Bildad, roared Pellick, starting up and clattering about the cabin. Blast ye, Captain Bildad, if I had followed thy advice in these matters, I would have for now had a conscience to love about that would be heavy enough to founder the largest ship that ever sailed round Cape Horn. Captain Pellick, said Bildad steadily, thy conscience may be drawing ten inches of water, or ten fathoms, I can't tell, but as thou art still an impenitent man, Captain Pellick, I greatly fear lest thy conscience be but a leaky one, and will in the end sink thee foundering down to the fiery pit, Captain Pellick. Fiery pit. Fiery pit. Ye insult me, man, past all natural bearing, ye insult me. It's an all-fiery outrage to tell any human creature that he's bound to hell. Flukes and flames. Bildad, say that again to me, and start my soul bolts, but I'll, I'll, yes, I'll swallow a live goat with all his hair and horns on. Out of the cabin, ye canting, drab-colored son of a wooden gun, a straight wake with ye. As he thundered out this he made a rush at Bildad, but with a marvelous oblique, sliding celerity, Bildad for that time eluded him. 
Alarmed at this terrible outburst between the two principal and responsible owners of the ship, and feeling half a mind to give up all idea of sailing in a vessel so questionably owned and temporarily commanded, I stepped aside from the door to give egress to Bildad, who, I made no doubt, was all eagerness to vanish from before the awakened wrath of Pelic. But to my astonishment, he sat down again on the transom very quietly and seemed to have not the slightest intention of withdrawing. He seemed quite used to impenitent Pelic and his ways. As for Pelic, after letting off his rage as he had, there seemed no more left in him, and he, too, sat down like a lamb, though he twitched a little as if still nervously agitated. Phew, he whistled at last, the squall's gone off to leeward, I think. Bildad, thou used to be good at sharpening a lance, mend that pen, will ye? My jackknife here needs the grindstone. That's he, thank ye, Bildad. Now then, my young man, Ishmael's thy name, didn't ye say? Well then, down ye go here, Ishmael, for the three hundredth lay. Captain Pellick, said I, I have a friend with me who wants to ship too, Shall I bring him down tomorrow? To be sure, said Pelic. Fetch him along, and we'll look at him. What lay does he want? groaned Bildad, glancing up from the book in which he had again been burying himself. Oh! Never thee mind about that, Bildad, said Pelic. Has he ever wailed any? Turning to me. Killed more whales than I can count. Captain Pellick. Well, bring him along then. And, after signing the papers, off I went, nothing doubting but that I had done a good morning's work, and that the Pequod was the identical ship that Yojo had provided to carry Queequeg and me round the Cape. But I had not proceeded far, when I began to bethink me that the captain with whom I was to sail yet remained unseen by me, though, indeed, in many cases, a whale ship will be completely fitted out and receive all her crew on board ere the captain makes himself visible by arriving to take command, for sometimes these voyages are so prolonged and the shore intervals at home so exceedingly brief that if the captain have a family or any absorbing concernment of that sort, he does not trouble himself much about his ship and port, but leaves her to the owners till all is ready for sea. However, it is always as well to have a look at him before irrevocably committing yourself into his hands. Turning back, I accosted Captain Pellick, inquiring where Captain Ahab was to be found. And what dost thou want of Captain Ahab? It's all right enough, thou art shipped. Yes, but I should like to see him. But I don't think thou wilt be able to at present. I don't know exactly what's the matter with him, but he keeps close inside the house, a sort of sick, and yet he don't look so. In fact, he ain't sick, but no, he isn't well either. Anyhow, young man, he won't always see me, so I don't suppose he will be. He's a queer man, Captain Ahab, so some think, but a good one. Oh, thou alt like him well enough, no fear. No fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man. Captain Ahab doesn't speak much, but 
when he does speak, then you may well listen. Mark ye, be forewarned, aunts above the common, aunts been in colleges, as well as among the cannibals, been used to deeper wonders than the waves, fixed his fiery lance and mightier, stranger foes than whales. His lance. I, the keenest and the surest that of all our isle. Oh, he ain't Captain Bildad, no, and he ain't Captain Pellick, he's Ahab, boy, and Ahab of old, thou knowest, was a crown king, and a very vile one. When that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Come hither to me, hither, hither, said Pellick, with a significance in his eye that almost startled me. Look ye, lad, never say that on board the Pequod. Never say it anywhere. Captain Ahab did not name himself. Twas a foolish, ignorant one of his crazy, widowed mother who died when he was only a twelve-month-old. And yet the old squatistic at Gayhead said that the name would somehow prove prophetic. And, perhaps, other fools like her may tell thee the same. I wish to warn thee. It's a lie. I know Captain Ahab well. I've sailed with him as many years ago. I know he is a good man, not a pious, good man, like Bildad, but a swearing good man, something like me, only there's a good deal more of him. I, I, I know that he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home, he was a little out of his mind for a spell, but it was the sharp shooting pains in his bleeding stump that brought that about, as anyone might see. I know, too, that ever since he lost his leg last voyage by that accursed whale, he's been a kind of moody, desperate moody, and savage sometimes, but that will all pass off. And once for all, let me tell thee and assure thee, young man, it's better to sail with a moody good captain than a laughing bad one. So goodbye to thee, and wrong not Captain Ahab, because he happens to have a wicked name. Besides, my boy, he has a wife, not three voyages wedded, a sweet, resigned girl. Think of that, by that sweet girl that old man has a child, hold ye then there can be any utter, hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad, stricken, blasted, if he be, Ahab has his humanities. As I walked away, I was full of thoughtfulness, what had been incidentally revealed to me of Captain Ahab filled me with a certain wild vagueness of painfulness concerning him. And somehow, at the time, I felt a sympathy and a sorrow for him, but for I don't know what, unless it was the cruel loss of his leg. And yet I also felt a strange awe of him, but that sort of awe, which I cannot at all describe, was not exactly awe, I do not know what it was. But I felt it, and it did not disincline me towards him, though I felt impatience at what seemed like mystery in him so imperfectly as he was known to me then. However, my thoughts were at length carried in other directions, so that for the present dark Ahab slipped my mind.